Please raise your right hand and repeat after me. I, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., do solemnly swear. One year from now, someone will stand on the west front of the United States Capitol, raise their right hand, and, with the guidance of Chief Justice John Roberts, utter the 35-word presidential oath of office. Dating back to George Washington nearly 235 years ago, every president has uttered those words, which are enshrined in Article 2, Section 1, Clause 8 of the United States Constitution. Of course, who that person will be is unknown at the moment. The world will be watching closely as our election plays out. But the United States is hardly the only country holding an election this year. Voters in some 40 countries, including eight of the 10 most populous, will also hold elections this year. Forgive the cliche, but it is correct to say that the stakes have never been higher. Elections, at least in countries where they are openly and vigorously contested, are generally loud and raucous affairs, often messy. And these days, one increasingly powerful dynamic is playing an increasingly ubiquitous role, the use of false campaign narratives. There's another word, of course, for such narratives, disinformation. I'm Paul Brandis, and that's the name of this award-winning podcast series, Disinformation a co-production of Evergreen and Emergent Risk International, or ERI, a global risk advisory firm. As usual, I'll be joined by ERI's Chief Executive Officer, Meredith Wilson, in a few minutes. In addition to the U.S., I mentioned a minute ago that dozens of countries will also hold elections this year. Among them, India, the world's biggest country, Indonesia, the largest Muslim country, as well as Brazil, Mexico, Pakistan, and South Africa, among others. But the first major one, now just hours away, is in the island nation of Taiwan, a Western democracy, a high-tech powerhouse that sits just 100 miles off the coast of China. China, as you know, has made no secret of its intention to fold Taiwan into the People's Republic, if necessary, by force. In terms of disinformation, however, China has already been bombarding Taiwan for years. You just heard Tsai Ming-yen, Taiwan's Director of National Security, telling lawmakers recently of hundreds of disinformation campaigns and or cases that have been uncovered. He calls disinformation, quote, evil, fake, and harmful. Beijing's relentless efforts are such that a study by the Digital Society Project, a Swedish-based research group, says Taiwan is the world's biggest target for disinformation from foreign governments. The question, though, just how effective are Beijing's efforts? I put that question to Dr. Simona Grano, a China and Taiwan specialist and senior fellow at the Asia Society. Well, it's been quite effective. I mean, China, of course, has been spreading rumors and various type of disinformation or, or misinformation in Taiwan since many years, including about 
the democratic system being a failing system, including about the DPP, this being the party that wants more distance from China, being actually an agent of the US. But what we see recently is that these kind of attempts have taken a more political elections directed dimension where, for example, uh, China and Beijing, they really target DPP politicians and all of those who actually take a tough stance on China in Taiwan. For example, recently they started to spread rumors that Xiaobi Kim, she's the vice presidential candidate for the DPP, is actually a U.S. citizen, so she should not be allowed to run for vice presidency. Or, for example, a very popular topic, uh, especially after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, was to highlight that the U.S. will not stand to Taiwan's side in case China invades because they have not done so in the case of Ukraine and they have retreated from Afghanistan, right? And that has made many people confused. And I think this is the real goal that China has. It's not about proving anything, but it's about sowing discontent and trust and, of course, and, and mistrust, I'm sorry. And we can also expect China to increase its rhetoric on the risk of war if the DPP wins the elections for a third consecutive term in order to try and sway the Taiwanese to vote for the China-friendly party. But I think to a certain extent, China is also doing this, trying to influence other countries, for example, through establishing contacts with local politicians. I don't know if you heard of the recent scandal here in Europe, where it came out that they were basically trying to establish um, contacts, and they did for many years, with a right-wing uh, Flemish politician of the European Parliament that was then paid to sway, for example, votings in the European Parliament so that this bloc would vote for things that are more China-friendly rather than together with the United States. So I think that China utilizes the same techniques in many countries, but Taiwan is at the forefront for sure. You called it uh, effective. Uh, tell me how it's effective in uh, on Taiwan. I think the main example that I gave you before shows that it is effective. I'm talking about the one uh, regarding the Russian invasion of Ukraine, because that was something that really touches many Taiwanese firsthand when they think that maybe one day they may have to go to war to defend their country and defend themselves. And so they know that on their own, Taiwan could not withstand a Chinese attack and it would need the United States. So if you sow distrust in your main security guarantor, the United States, then of course, most people, this is the hope that Beijing has, will start to think, how can we avoid such a horrible scenario? And that is getting closer to China. So there are certain narratives that are more effective than others. And those, of course, that touch Taiwanese in their daily lives firsthand have more of a chance of of, of swaying something, of swaying the uh, the people for the Beijing-friendly quasi-option. Well, it sounds like you're saying that uh, American actions, in a way, are helping the Chinese in uh, sowing a doubt among the Taiwanese uh, citizens uh, with regard to American reliability. No, that's not what I meant. I believe that the situations are very different, right? So I won't speculate as to why it's, it's obvious why uh, actually Americans have not directly intervened in Ukraine, but have only intervened by providing weapons. The same have other NATO countries and, and European countries as well. Without America, probably the war would be over and would, be, um, would have been won by Russia. So that's not what I meant. But what I meant was that China is able to utilize uh, what China sees as discrepancies in very difficult scenarios and situations to try to apply them to the Taiwanese situation. I 
personally, I think that Taiwan is much more geostrategically and geopolitically and also ideologically much more important for, for the United States and that they would most probably intervene. But of course, from the perspective of China, this is a very useful narrative to use. What are the Taiwanese authorities doing to thwart this, this tidal wave of disinformation? What are the Taiwanese authorities doing to kind of blunt that? I mean, the Taiwanese have done a lot because they are, as I said before, at the forefront of these attempts. So they have a lot of experiences with them. What they do, of course, is that they have established a variety of think tanks and centers. One of them is called Taiwan Fact Check Center that routinely and solely work with the purpose of finding out what are real news and filtering them for the Taiwanese public and separating them from fake news and misinformation and disinformation. What they also do, of course, is that they try to um, uh, go back to the source, right, of these of these misinformation attempts. And very often they find, of course, sources coming either from mainland China or anyway accounts that are maybe in content form somewhere in Southeast Asia, but most possibly also paid uh, by, by, by someone in mainland China. But it is very difficult, you know, because of course this requires a lot of money, a lot of support and a lot, of course, of personnel being involved in daily fact-checking. So it is really time-consuming also for the government to set up these kind of facilities. Thanks to Dr. Simona Grano, a China and Taiwan specialist and senior fellow at the Asia Society. She joined us from Switzerland. Meanwhile, as I mentioned, there are dozens of countries scheduled to hold elections this year. The most important is our own, now just 10 months away. In terms of mis- and disinformation, our thing's shaping up. I'll speak with Meredith Wilson about that after this short break. This series on disinformation is a co-production of Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International, a global risk advisory firm. Emergent Risk International. We build intelligent solutions that find opportunities in a world of risk. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. Welcome back. More than 155 million Americans cast ballots in the 2020 election, a number that 
could be exceeded this November. There are, of course, hundreds of races, including local and state races, all the way up to every House seat, one-third of the Senate, and, of course, the marquee contest for the White House. As usual, we'll be bombarded with campaign messages from all sides, which may be, shall we say, less than accurate or taken out of context. Voters are left to decide for themselves what's what. This is hardly new, of course. The great satirist Will Rogers observed one century ago that, quote, the problem in America isn't so much what people don't know. The problem is what people think they know that just ain't so, unquote. What is new, however, is the technology and ubiquitousness of it that allows false narratives to be manufactured by anyone, targeted with great accuracy, and spread at the push of a button. Artificial intelligence, algorithms, social media, and all the rest. Let's bring in Meredith Wilson now. Once again, she's Chief Executive Officer of Emergent Risk International. 2024, in terms of myths and disinformation at U.S. elections, give me your outlook in terms of myths and disinformation. What's 2024 looking like? Uh, well, I wish I could be more optimistic, but uh, but I think it's going to be pretty ugly. Um, we have a, a real lack of oversight in the information environment right now, which is, is worrying and in some ways surprising, um, considering all of the Things that happened in the, uh, you know, in the days after January 6th, um, there's a lot of radicalization happening in the, um, you know, broader U.S. population, and it's happening in silos, so people aren't necessarily seeing it. And for ordinary people, uh, you know, a lot of people aren't necessarily seeing it because they're going about their day-to-day -day lives. And so these things develop, they fester, and then, you know, in comes an election cycle. And uh, and and we're, we're likely to see a lot of that surface and, um, and people taking even more extreme sides, even more sort of radical narratives than we've seen in the past. Um, I think uh, we've seen several polls now that have come from different uh, different polling groups, some of them partisan, some of them nonpartisan, but but most of them are in pretty solid agreement that we have more Americans now than uh, than we have at any other time um, in the recent past, uh, saying that violence is okay in pursuit of a you know political outcome. And so those things are worrying. Um, and in the meantime, we have the the disinformation misinformation sort of um, environment has gotten much, much more polluted. Uh, and we have less controls and less oversight on some of the social media platforms uh, that previously had really worked to, um, you know, to build in better oversight. Um, we also have these other social media platforms like uh, TikTok and um, Gab and WhatsApp and all of these ones where we can't actually see necessarily what's happening the way that we can on, say, a Facebook or something like that. Um, and, and, and that's all happening almost out of the view of, um, you know, of a lot of people. So long answer to a short question, but I think the, um, you know, the outlook is not great for this, uh, this coming election. I want to get into the uh, the oversight uh, angle of that in just a second, but uh, you know, it seems to me that uh, there are a lot of folks who maybe might not have uh, you know much of a uh, a memory, if you will, about uh, the past. And by that, I mean 
2020 for a lot of people is really almost uh, ancient history. And they might say, well, uh, 2022, the midterm election, in fact, uh, that seemed to go pretty smoothly. There was, uh, there were not a lot of uh, issues around that. Uh, therefore, I think 2024 uh, could go pretty smoothly. I, I think that's a misunderstanding of the difference between a midterm election and a presidential cycle. But uh, what do you think? I think you're right. Um, midterms are different, you know, and and really um, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that, you know, midterms are quieter. Um, they don't have the same media attention. They don't have the big conventions that get people all stirred up. They don't have the presidential whistle stops that you have all over the country where you have, you know, going out to, um, you know, factories and visiting and going to, you know, stopping at airports and doing rallies and things like that. It's an entirely different ballgame. And this one beyond that um, is is different, uh, just like 2020 was because of the personalities involved and the, um, you know, the the sort of very charismatic, uh, you know, sort of um, individuals who have very strong followings, uh, very strong followers. Um, and we have, you know, for for lack of a better way to say it, we have a number of politicians now that are willing to engage in a type of electoral warfare that, um, you know, was not common before 2016. And um, and all of those things contribute to this sort of cauldron of, of problems um, that are just going to be bigger and uh, and and more. Uh, you know, more in front of us than than they are when you have a off term, you know, or a midterm election um, and it's senators and representatives versus presidential candidates. You know, speaking of sort of you mentioned uh, 2016, the uh, the arc of what has changed since then. We had 2016, 2020, it got worse. Uh, be more specific, if you could, about uh, 2024. What What are we actually going to see uh, next year? Yeah, I, well, you know, I mean, this is where we need to be paying really close attention to what's happening both overseas and other elections and what's happening kind of right in front of us online. You know, for example, uh, this morning there was an article about the um, mimetic warfare that one of the candidates is engaging in. And, um, and, and people don't necessarily see the connection between the candidate and the memes, unless they're really following this, right? But there's a whole group of individuals out there that are just putting out nasty, funny, uh, maybe not funny, maybe really, really toxic um, memes that, you know, may not seem particularly impactful, but they do, they are extremely impactful. And there's been a lot of study around that. Um, these just things that pop up in people's news feeds and things like that. So you see the you see those little clues of you know what's to come, and um, and we saw we saw a lot of that actually in 2016, maybe a little bit less of it in in 2020. But those things contribute to the narrative. They contribute to the way that these things start to play out in people's mind. You start listening to the rhetoric of the candidates. What are they saying when they're on the campaign trail? Um, you know, in this case, we have a major candidate who is um, under uh, several, has several different indictments. Um, and, uh, you know, so there's some, there's some 
sort of radicalized discussion around that and whether or not, uh, you know, a former president can even be held to account for things. Um, there is, uh, if you look at the overseas elections, if you look at Argentina, for example, Argentina, um, the the president, the new president, um, in his campaigns, he used a lot of AI to, um, you know, to create things that simply were not true, um, that were completely fake. And as of now, we don't have any controls over that for this coming election in the U.S. either. We don't have anything that says that you're not allowed to do that. There have been attempts to do that, but nobody's actually done it. So how much of what we're going to see this time is actually completely fake? Um, how, do, how are we going to know that? There's no uh, there's no law that says you have to watermark something that is uh, AI generated um, AI is going to be able to speed up the process of how much of this disinformation comes out and where it comes out and how often it comes out. Where we were looking in 2020 at what seemed to be a fairly sophisticated machine, now take that and amplify that by, you know, 30, 40, 100 percent. So there's a lot of new technology that's going to affect the way this election goes. There's a lot of old stuff that uh, we've seen before that's going to be amplified even more than previously. Um, and we have, um, you know, we have several social media platforms that um, that no longer have any real controls on them in terms of what can and can't be shown, how the algorithms will sort through that, uh, how overseas uh, state and non-state actors play into all of this. So there's a lot that's different and it's mostly just more extreme than it was in 2020. So in, in the aggregate of everything that you're saying here, this arc from 2016 to now is a disturbing one. And something else about that that I want to, you to comment on is the fact that the, all of these things appear to be just, uh, um, the, the, they've been normalized, at least uh, if that's the right word, in the minds of a lot of folks are not maybe aware of these things, they're not top of mind, they're not paying attention. So in other words, it's not uh, enough of an issue for them to uh, sit up and say, hey, this isn't right, or oh, this is just something very normal to them. They're not disturbed by it. Does that make sense at all? Yeah, and I don't think that people aren't disturbed by it. I think people don't feel like they have any control over it. You know, it's a little bit like watching a runaway train. You know, when you talk to most people, they will tell you that they're pretty uncomfortable about this upcoming election. Um, and, you know, that's average people, um, you know, people who aren't necessarily involved in politics and that. There's a lot of people that will tell you that they're really not comfortable with the direction that things are headed right now, but they don't know what to do about that. They don't necessarily know uh, how to address that. Um, most people, when it comes to technology right now, just simply do not know what they don't know because technology is moving so fast that if you aren't spending every day reading about the new technology that's coming out, you're behind. And that's 95% of the population uh, for no other reason that, that they have busy lives and they have things that they have to worry about beyond you know the, whatever technology comes out. The issue then, one of them at least, is that things are moving so quickly, technology is developing so rapidly that most folks simply cannot acclimate quickly enough. The advantage then goes to the folks Meredith mentioned who are creating content that can be, in her words, toxic, nasty, and impactful. The problem with that is, is that um, we don't realize oftentimes until it's too late 
what has been happening with technology. So, for example, in 2016, when we, uh, you know, there were there were a, a handful of us that understood prior to the elections that there was a ton of disinformation circulating. Uh, there were a large majority of people understood something wasn't right, but they weren't sure what. And uh, and then afterwards, you had the Cambridge Analytica thing break and you had, um, you know, all of the sudden people went, wait, so all of that information that I've been pumping into social media all these years has been used to micro-target me. But they didn't know that before the election because nobody ever sat down and explained that. Um, and that's because social media, people didn't understand how social media was being used to um, to target them from a marketing perspective. And then, you know, in this particular case, from a political perspective. Now people sort of understand that and you see them pulling back from what they, they share on social media. But what they probably don't understand is how AI is being used and how all of that data that's been collected since the dawn of really of the, the World Wide Web, um, how all that data is being used um, politically to, you know, to still target them. And it's far beyond their social media, right? So those are, you know, some of the things it seems that uh, what you're talking about here, and I think you alluded to this a couple of minutes ago, is really kind of a lack of guardrails here in terms of, you know, there's no legislation. You mentioned a requirement that things have to be watermarked, for example. Uh, the, the legislative process has not caught up, caught up with this if there is, in fact, even, you know, a will to do something about it. And then in the marketplace, are there any kind of... Uh, financial incentives that would inhibit people from uh, doing this kind of thing. I'm not really uh, aware of anything of a substantive nature that would inhibit people from uh, manufacturing uh, these kinds of things. No, there there definitely isn't. And there are definitely financial incentives to doing it. You know, just like we found out in, uh, in previous cycles, you know, creating fake news websites is uh, actually you know, for a long time was far more lucrative than um, than actual reporting the news as a, you know, as a journalist, make 40,000 a year as a journalist, or you could just pump out fake news and get clicks on ads and make 150,000 a year, you know. Um, I don't know that those exact incentives still exist um, because, you know, Google in particular has done a, a fairly decent job of pushing down um those algorithms so that they don't, um, you know, incentivize so much fake information. But and there are lots and lots of reasons to, um, you know, to make a YouTube channel that, um, you know, that still pumps out fake narratives. And they, you know, because they're so much more sensationalist, they still get far more clicks and people still make far more money on them. Um, it's the same reason that news headlines tend to be slanted towards the very, very dramatic, because in order for those news sites to make money, you have to have something that people want to read. And that, you know, is going to be far more interesting if it's salacious, if it's violent, if it's uh, slightly slanderous, right? And then you get to the article, and if you read the article, you might find that the headline is actually not really um, what the article is about, but a lot of people only get their news from headlines these days. So... I don't see a lot of uh, I don't see a lot of financial incentive not to create disinformation right now. There was a uh, late uh, New York Yankees uh, baseball player Yogi Berra who was known for his you know Berra isms I think yeah. they called him and one of them was uh, it's getting late awfully early 
and uh, adopting that, is it uh, too late to do anything about uh, 2024? What, uh, what can be done, if anything, at this uh, late date to uh, um, kind of thwart these things that uh, you've been talking about? Yeah, I think, you know, it, there are definitely people out there fighting the good fight on this. There are a lot of people that are pushing, um, you know, to to get the word out about what is disinformation, what is not, about what you need to be watching, what you don't. Um, there's a lot of people who have jumped into this space in the last four years and are doing um, some really neat things, either technologically or, um, you know, just good old-fashioned education, trying to get more people more savvy about what they're seeing. Um, I don't know that there's any one solution. I think the, um, you know, the biggest thing still, unfortunately or fortunately, comes down to educating people. And, you know, that starts in the classroom and then it, you know, works its way up all the way through the workforce in terms of letting people know, you know, that this is what's out here. The challenge is always... How do we do that in a nonpartisan manner, right? How do we do that in a way that says, I'm challenging you to think critically about these things, not necessarily to think the way that I do, but to think critically and ask the right questions so that you can draw your own conclusions about the truth behind what you're seeing. And um, I do think there's a lot more effort at that right now. I just, there is a, you know, there is a tide that we have to swim against with um, the the pace with which technology is developing and our inability to regulate that because it's just all happening way too fast, and um, we don't we don't live in a country where we are likely to preemptively regulate things because we want to innovate and and all of that. And so this is the downside of that. Thanks to Dr. Simona Grano of the Asia Society. Sound from. Taiwan Plus News. Our sound designer and editor, Noah Fouts. Audio engineer, Nathan Corson. Executive producers, Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. And on behalf of Meredith Wilson, I'm Paul Brandis. Thanks so much for listening. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.